0: episode of Dopey was brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery. Located in sunny Southern California, in Silver Lake, and Malibu, Aloe was created by our good friend Bob Forrest and his good friends Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission? To create a facility that treated addicts and alcoholics with compassion and connection rather than control. And I have a bunch of friends who went to Aloe and they all say that's true. They were treated like humans, and they really, really enjoyed the experience. They are masters at treating addiction as well as co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. They make sure your detox is as comfortable as possible. They have amenities you wouldn't believe. Sound bath meditation, yoga, equine therapy, surfing. If you want it, they probably have it. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I highly recommend going to Alex. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the bonus episode of Dopey, the bonus episode of the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And I'm Dave and welcome to the show. And I'm alone again in the attic on a very snowy, wintery night. Last night was the first snowstorm we've had in New York in like, I want to say three years or something. And it made me think of snowstorms in the past. And it made me think of a specific snowstorm many years ago. And it was many years ago when I was living on the Lower East Side alone, and I was using heroin, and I was working at Katz's, and there was a blizzard coming to town. And I remember I called up my dealer, who was this disgusting scumbag named guy who looked kind of like mickey rourke and he would wear one of those leather jackets like it was like a blazer but it was the leather jacket kind of like the leather jackets that they wore in TV shows about the 70s and guy kind of had really greasy hair that might have had some kind of product in it, but it might have just been his natural grease. And he looked kind of like Mickey Rourke, real skinny. And he would, he had a lot of teeth missing, you know. And he'd come over to my apartment with like a 40 and shit load of pills and heroin. And um, he would sit in the recliner with the 40 at his feet. Counting out pills and nodding out, and he had this. He was from Long Island, and he talked kind of like a, a classic New York junkie would talk. And he'd be like, "Dave, I had to go to the methadone clinic today, and I I couldn't even get my bags, so I'm gonna have to charge you a little bit more. I don't I don't know how many bags you want, how many pills you want to get, but I, you know I'm gonna have to charge you a little bit more." And then he'd fall asleep as he'd give me the bags, and I'd have to shake him. And I remember, and and I would wait for him for so long, and he lived down the street from me. He lived in the projects on Water Street, and I lived in the ex-Jewish projects on Grand Street, which were now bougie uh, private apartments. And he lived literally 10 minutes away, but he would take hours to come, and a blizzard was coming. So I went out to meet him, which I never wanted to do because I was always so scared of getting busted. I actually, the last time I got actually busted, I got busted because a guy forgot to come. He was nodding out too much and I had to go meet him. So I went to go meet him that night and um, and the blizzard was coming and my laptop was broken and I was so afraid um, of not having my computer for the blizzard, I took my computer and I went out to meet Guy and I had a few hundred bucks and I bought like three bundles. And, uh, it, you know, obviously there was no... I mean, if you try to get your computer fixed now, you, you can't get it fixed because of COVID and the people at the Genius Bar won't see you. I remember I walked to the Mac store on Prince Street. I dropped off my computer and then I decided to go hoodie shopping at Old Navy And I went to Old Navy, and that was the year that somebody had the genius idea to make the hoodies where the strings that come out of the hood have uh, earphones on them. And I had all this money because I was waitering, so I bought like four Old Navy hoodies with the strings had earphones on them. And in the inside of the hoodie pocket, it had the jack for your iPhone. And I bought I just bought like all this crap, this horrible old Navy cozy winter gear. And I went back to um the the Mac store. I met with the dude, they fixed my computer, I went home and it started snowing and I and I, I bought some needles and I went upstairs and I got really high and I started taking and the, the snow came down and I started taking pictures of uh, of the snow uh, on on my camera. And it wasn't the iPhone camera. It was like I had a camera, and I took these blurry pictures, and I remember sitting at the computer, nodding out, trying to edit the pictures. And it was like, that was like, if if there's a glorification of drug story, it's kind of like that. It's like this, you're alone, your house is clean, and the snow is falling outside, and you use until you run out, and you have enough to last you until the next night. And uh I'm sure the next night I got sick. Um and I and I loved getting high and uh and watching TV and um the other night I was sitting with Linda and um and she's like, "Oh, we should show um Susan Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the the old kind of fifties cartoon or early sixties cartoon claymation thing. So um, we put it on and we're sitting there and and, I, and it came back to me that that night I had watched those cartoons and like they were so good, like those stupid cartoons coupled with heroin created the the, the greatest illusion of safety in the world. And um, it's funny, it's just such a weird thing like, like I would use to create this sort of illusion of safety, like my life was okay. And, um, and it never could last. And it always ran out and it always got so, so, so bad. And, um, when we watched it with Susan, Susan hated it because she was so afraid of the abominable snowman. But, um, the best thing about Rudolph and, um, I mean, I love that movie. I loved it on dope. Uh, I loved it off dope. My favorite thing about it, and all of us know, it's the island of misfit toys, which is the Dopey Nation, which are drug addicts, which are uh, people in recovery, which are these freaks that somehow get together and try to live their best life. And I find that shit to be incredibly inspiring. And um, I've been killing myself these days, uh, doing this customer service work for Katz's, where I'm kind of sitting at the desk for, you know, eight or 10 hours a day, taking these complaints from all over the world about Katz's and some compliments and some problems with shipping. And I'm just going and going and going. And the snow was falling today. And I was looking out the window and I see Linda and, and Nora and Susan playing in the snow. And I was just thinking like, I can't believe I've, my life has changed so much. And I can't believe um, that the sickness isn't coming, and that I'm not going to run out, and that these moments of crazy bliss that are fake are not around. And instead, it's all real. You know, it's not hiding out. And I'm, I'm I don't know. I'm thrilled. It's it's a good. It's it's a hard winter. Uh, I killed myself for Dopey Contour. Obviously, the pandemic has kept us all very isolated, me included lately since this latest kind of spike i haven't I've barely left the house also doing the customer service work, but I had a real sort of one of those uh gratuitous moments of gratitude and uh, I wanted to share it with you guys, coupled with an old school kind of tale of dopey um, so there's a guy we had on the show we recorded it. Sometime in the last few months He's a dude that I've always considered getting on the show He's a, a big time radio guy His name is Mike Catherwood he's a, He was Drew's partner, Dr. Drew's partner on Loveline He does a ton of podcasts And, and he's an addict and he's in recovery He's very inspiring But I might have made a classic mistake which is I'm always trying different things to make the sound sound good, and I figured with a guy like Mike Catherwood, he would be able to record his end, and I would record my end, and we'd have the crazy good sound. But And I'm going to blame him. Mike Catherwood (laughs) told me that if we recorded the Zoom, it would sound good or good enough, and I stupidly believed him. So the sound might not be as good as you've come to expect, especially if you kick down for the dopey new sound system, which I'm still incredibly hesitant to buy. So please, you know, give me a break with the fucking sound and enjoy the greatness that is Mike Catherwood. I've been wanting you to come on the show forever. Yeah, uh, I met you the first time I met you virtually. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember it very well. It was probably three and a half years ago and you were on um, oh no it was it was um, Dr. Drew and Bob Forrest Bob you live and they had me and Chris my partner for Dopey on their show, yeah. I was waiting tables at Katz's. Chris was at a sober house in Massachusetts, and we were calling in. And I was all nervous about it, you know, the whole day as I'm waiting tables to, to call in to Dr. Drew's show, like it was going to be this big deal. And uh, so I tuck into the back office at Katz's. It's me and Chris in separate places. I think Drew and Bob were in separate places. Nobody could hear anything. The Dominicans in the kitchen are louder than the show. And then you walk. Bye, and they're like, Hey, Mike Catherwood, and they pull you in, and uh, and then that was the whole thing, and it was over. But Dopey Nation, radio legend, podcasting legend, crazy fit, Los Angelino, TV personality,
1: Mike Catherwood, welcome to Dopey. Thank you, man. I, yeah, no, it's been a long time, you know, since uh, we've been trying to set this up, and I've as long as you've wanted to have me on, is you know, equal amount of time that I've wanted to, to be on dopey. So I'm I'm glad we could finally make it work.
0: No, that's so cool. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, as I'm getting ready for the interview, I'm looking at your Instagram and just scrolling and absorbing you. I mean, like the the, the phenomenon of social media is so funny. You know what I mean? Because obviously we, we know people that we don't know, you know, Mm -hmm. I know of you and I've heard you on the radio and I've heard you on the podcast, but there's a whole other side of you on Instagram. And like, we kind of like, it's just funny. You know what I mean? So I like, I was, I was watching all your Rudy Culo breaker bits, which Mm -hmm. are very, um, and, uh, Mike does this Mexican, this Mexicano character, El Culo breaker Rudy. Right. And you invented that a long time
1: ago, Right. Um, probably like twenty. My daughter's here now. So. Say hi, Magnolia. Hi,
0: Magnolia. Hey, Magnolia. Cool. All
1: right, hey babe. I, uh, not that I don't love spending every second with you, but I got I got to do this. Okay, can you give, give me some space? Thank you, my love. I have the same thing.
0: My kids, I
1: have two kids, two
0: girls, and they wander in in the middle of Dopey and it's like somebody's talking about shooting meth. and then my 10-year-old walks in and it's like, Nora, welcome back to the show. Yeah, the stakes
1: stakes are a lot higher for your kids walking into your podcast. mine, we're usually talking about like meathead stuff. It's never, it's never a self-professed meathead
0: Let's break it down from there yeah. What is the self-professed meathead?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think Especially in the 90s You know There was this thing where All the kind of traditional tropes That um, young men had in America They just vanished Where, like, it used to be really cool I would have, you know, I can only imagine But it seemed like, if I watch movies And take anything from that That, like, um, you know wearing your varsity jacket and and, and being into pumping iron and being like captain of the football team, that was like, that was cool. In the mid nineties, there was like, nothing could be less cool. You know, anything macho was looked at as so silly, but I had found, I really, really found a lot of therapeutic kind of effect from working out from physical exercise. And, um, I, I really Feel like it's been instrumental in me being able to stay in recovery, and, and it, it definitely is like a big facet of my my recovery. You know, on I wouldn't say it's as important or more important than than you know the the fellowship or meditation or anything like that, but it's it's absolutely like a crucial element for me because um, there's a lot of clarity to it. You know, like. 200 pounds is always 200 pounds. It doesn't matter if your boss doesn't dig you. It doesn't matter if uh, someone else is, if they're, they're casting diverse. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like they in my, in my, every other factor in my life, it doesn't matter if my daughter's in a bad mood or every other aspect of my life. There's all these outside contributing factors that get in the way, stuff that I cannot control. Every single time I walk into a gym, 250 pounds is going to be 250 pounds every single time I leave uh, a seven minute mile is a seven minute mile. You know, there's so much clarity and, and it's like you work harder you do it. You can sit and you can watch yourself progress and just being able to have that kind of like baseline accountability to something and, and that, and that level of like willingly suffering for the, for the better. Um, it, it, it really just has been so good to me. So I, I've kind of like, Adopted. I wouldn't. I honestly don't think I'm really like a meathead in the classic sense. In that I'm not. Fr- frankly, I'm not very big. I'm not a big person. And also, I'm not particularly but, macho. I mean, I,
0: on Instagram, you look huge and macho.
1: So this is, this <laughs> is really an interesting point. But um, uh, but I, I but I, I do think like I, I kind of adopted that because I, I I wanted there to be this notion that man, woman, old, young, like there really shouldn't be any shame about putting in the effort. You know, because it's much more about, like, understanding yourself, self-awareness, self-control than it is about having a six-pack or, or having a, a 400-pound bench press, you know? See, I'm, I'm where I'm at in
0: my recovery is, like, and I keep, I say this every year, that this is the year I'm going to put fitness <laughs> into my recovery. I'm going to be yes. fitness this fitness into my recovery as Rudy L. Kulo. <laughs> um and i i like i've gotten to the point where i'm doing push ups every morning and sit ups every morning, but that's as far as i've gotten i'm ready to bust out the fucking rocky music and run and I mean I know that i'm going to get there i need to I need to take the leap when, when before you got sober was fitness always a big thing for you? I know you were an athlete in
1: high school, yeah, it was, but it was my my motives were kind of misguided you know like it was really about the it wasn't even really about the aesthetic as much as like, I just wanted to be big and strong and I didn't associate any of the other outside kind of latent benefits to it. I just really, I, I really wanted to just be like a big, strong person and it didn't matter. My health didn't matter. My, um, my level of self-awareness didn't matter. And like I noticed something even relatively recently in the last couple of years, um, that, you know, for so long, I just used exercise, as a as a distract as an escape as a distraction and it was no different well okay i don't want to say it was no different than drugs and alcohol because obviously one's a lot more dangerous and a lot more harmful but the way that i applied it to my life was no different because i wasn't as committed to romantic relationships to my friends to my family to my work because i always had this thing that i would just when things got rough i would go to the gym or i would go you know, cook myself my chicken breast and weigh it. And I was, it was, it was an escape. It always was. And, 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 and until very recently, honestly, like it was probably like a couple summers ago where I realized like exercise, like many things, it should be really about getting more in tune with myself, not escaping, you know, like becoming more present and becoming more in tune with the moment. And I have to, I really have to thank, combat sports martial arts and and boxing and and things like that for 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 that because you have no choice but to be present or someone's going to fuck you up right like it it literally put it's like a boot camp for presence and awareness i I have to be so in tune with what's happening right now i can't worry about what what the governor's going to say about covid i can't worry about whether or not the show i'm doing is going to get picked up like i i have to be in the moment, right this second, or else a guy's going to throw a right cross that's going to put me to sleep, you know? So that, that's been amazing, that ability to kind of um, synthesize it for a while, and then kind of naturally, organically develop that ability.
0: I think that's cool. I think it's like very much like the Karate Kid. He learns how to wax a car and he can block a punch. And you learn how to be mindful to not get
1: destroyed in the ring. And you can be mindful in, in, in something else. Absolutely. Cool. You know, I have a, a very close friend of mine who's an extremely successful um, criminal defense attorney, and he's a black belt in jujitsu and he's very good. He's he's an older guy, but he's he's exceptionally good at jujitsu. And he said that jujitsu has made him exponentially better in the courtroom because when you have a two hundred and fifty pound hairy monster uh, on top of you putting his knee into your belly and and you know trying to collar choke you, um, things going haywire in the courtroom seem like nothing. You know, he he's developed such an ability to remain composed under extreme circumstances. And so like you just you see these, these latent benefits and it's like, hey man, you and I can both empathize with the fact that Sure Why do we Why do we go to the rooms Why do we Talk to a sponsor It's because we want to stay clean But Man Has it ever helped In a million other aspects Of our lives Um, I I I don't I don't worry About What's going to happen Next week I stay Day by day I do it day by day I worry about like Hey I'm writing this episode right now. I can't worry about what people are going to think about it in two weeks. What the Instagram algorithm is going to do with it in you know tomorrow if I post it? Just what am I doing right now? And it's take it step by step. And and I, I've been force fed that notion, along with a lot of other really beautiful you know productive aspects of of recovery that I've taken and brought into um, into you know other other facets of my life. So um, I, I think that I think that that's. Something that, you know, and you can't I, I couldn't have told that to myself at 21 I don't know about other, 20, you know, mid-20s kids out there that, that maybe they're more advanced than I was But I, I couldn't I always had to put the cart before the horse You know, I was just like Well, I'm lifting weights, I want to be buff I, I, I can't self-control, what the fuck are you t-? You know, everything was so kind of myopic, you know I, I think get that it. only I think that only comes with With experience and maturity um, But you know Getting getting back to you It's like You say like One of these days I'm gonna start my journey it Sounds like you already have You're doing your push-ups You're doing your sit-ups And you don't get consumed with like I need to do more So the future will look like A, B, or C Like You did 50 push-ups today I did 60 You did 60 push-ups today I did I mean, 60. First off That's not that, that ain't Nothing to sneeze at 60 push-ups Tomorrow you the only thing you have to worry about tomorrow you're doing 61 okay you okay. know what i'm saying like they, you're not you're not like in two years i need to be doing 200 and, and also going to the gym and with like today i did 60 wake up tomorrow the only thing that's happening is making sure that you're not doing 59 right you're doing 60 and hopefully you're doing 61
0: i can do 61 tomorrow um, The time that I met you, the first time I met you on the phone, you came in and, and Drew, I think Bob or Drew was like, oh, Mike, he was a crazy meth guy. And, and we were talking about meth, I think. And, and when I, <laughs> and I've and i been doing research on you. I, I haven't had a lot of meth pop up. I've had a lot of crack
1: pop up. I'm like, yeah, I was just, honestly, I was just stimulants, period. You know like it was either it honestly like when I was in California, it was mostly meth, and when I was on the East Coast, it was mostly mostly coke and and crap um, it, it was a demographic thing i just i honestly I just don't uh, I tried dope I, I, I certainly wasn't going to like turn it down It was better than being sober but I, it just didn't it was it wasn't my thing it didn't get me going. I liked to be up, and I honestly think it's because i'm naturally so high strung and I've talked about this with Tom Arnold, and he, he agreed with me. I think one of the things that made stimulants so appealing to me is that I finally – it was the one thing that can make me calm down. Most people, they do a bump, and they're, like, talking your ear off. I was the guy who was already talking your ear off and probably was, like, internally telling myself, shut up, shut up, shut up. And then I'd do a bump or I'd smoke some tweak, and I, I was like, yeah, I'm cool. And I was really just comfortable in my skin, kind of relaxed. little bit more focused it just seemed like i was a better me you know and and um so i think there must be some kind of like and and it makes a little sense like from from bro science i mean what do they give kids with add they give them ritalin they give them these adderall uh, Adderall, stimulants you know because that it kind of counteracts their natural chemistry you know totally i mean i i heard you talking
0: about this brain chemistry and kind of chemicals we take in and I'm naturally up too and I'm naturally talkative and I'm the same way but when I did coke like or meth even it almost didn't affect me it didn't relax me and when I took heroin and when I took benzos it made me feel finally safe and at home however both of us had that same response to weed so I think it's interesting like when we like for you stimulants hit you right and pot hit you right for me opiates and benzos hit me right and pot hit me right but for somebody else like they can't smoke weed or they can't do this like I mean I wonder are there any studies for like why one drug affects one person and another differently
1: I'm sure there are I, I can't name any or I, I, I'm not that familiar with them personally but I know that there has to be because there's the same studies with food um, you know everyone especially with the advent of the internet every guru is going to tell you that his or her diet is the way you should eat the reality is, is like there's only one right answer, and the right answer is like everyone's wildly different. Every human being's chemical composition and, and, and on a cellular level is different, and you know I know that that uh, the term snowflake has gotten co-opted for political reasons, but the reality is, is we are snowflakes. I mean, like. Um, some people, they eat this new carnivore thing where people are eating only meat, no plant products, whatever, and they thrive and they do it. If I did that, if I didn't have carbs, man, I'd be asleep by noon, um, you know, and everybody's everybody's wildly different. And I think that there's some people, we all know them, they can smoke, they can take 50 bong rips and they're ready to go to the gym. And then one person, you know, he's 300 pound and He takes a, a little puff off a joint. He's like drooling on himself. It's just people have such weird chemical and there's a million factors. There's Evolutionary stuff, cultural stuff, there's, you know, like, the the social stuff, like, maybe you were raised in a household where you're on edge, so certain stuff you don't really, it doesn't sit with you well, you know, like, a benzo's probably, like, a manna from heaven, maybe you came from a place where you were, like, overly bored all your life, and, like, the idea of smoking crystal meth is just, like, an amazing thing, so, like, there's a million factors, and we all have such different lives, and that's a... At the heart of like what I think is such a big problem Right now and why the country is so divisive Is that we all try to You know Dictate how everyone else should live In like Twitter, in, in headlines And Twitter feed with 120 Characters or whatever it is And that's the human experience is Incredibly complex and every one Of us has an incredibly complex Different nuanced kind of way of looking At things, a different way of experiencing Everything and And there's just no way to, like, kind of make this assertion that this is right, this is wrong, because... Not necessarily for me. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe no, it's I mean, not. But
0: I mean, I wish there was more togetherness and there was more like compassion and sweetness and recognizing the good and, you know, in each other. And that, div- I mean, the divisiveness of this moment in American history is so scary, like um, and crazy. I've, and dopey is like apolitical. Like I keep dopey sure. totally apolitical because I want it to be a place where addicts can go and feel at home and
1: feel like they're with friends you know? well you know why I mean look addiction is apolitical absolutely I mean one of the other many latent benefits we've talked about earlier there's not a lot of places in, in the modern America where you'll go and sit in a room with men, women, really rich, really poor, living on the street poor, ver- hedge fund billionaire sitting on each flanking you, black, white, Hispanic, Jewish, Christian, all everyone all in the same room. And they're all there for the same goddamn reason. And it's really beautiful, you know?
0: That's the coolest thing. You can yeah. go to a fucking trans meeting on, in the East Village or then go to this crazy Republican working class meeting on Long Island and it's the same message and it's yeah. the same life thing it's like it's a great watering hole for freaks you know it's a spiritual watering hole for all of us you know crazy addicts when did did you realize you were an addict like when did it get out of control
1: I actually realized I probably was like clinically an addict uh, prior to it getting out of control but i just thought especially at that age and i think you know we all suffer from this somewhat i was arrogant enough to think that i could just manage it you know and inevitably i couldn't and it, it spiraled out of control but i was probably 16 17 Years old. It was alcohol, and was it coke yet? Um, at that point, like a little bit of coke, but mostly just just booze and weed. You know, it was very kind of pedestrian how I got started. Yeah. And, you know, just the average kind of high school kid wanting to party. But I just I definitely remember having those moments where I realized, you know, I'd be at second period, and most kids th- they're thinking about third period you know or whatever and i was like already thinking about like maybe i can cut class at lunch you know i can go off campus and find someone who has weed i bet you he has weed maybe we can go get high and i was just constantly obsessing about getting inebriated you know and i and i was like "Mm, i don't think everybody else feels this way you know (laughs) i'm pretty sure that this is this is unique i might have a i might have an issue but it didn't stop me by any stretch so when you were 16 or 17 you were
0: like uh oh! Like there's some there's something you recognized there was something amiss.
1: Yeah, and I and I can't I I'm Mexican Irish right down the middle. You know, and both of my grandparents on both sides were immigrants. I mean, I'm like in a lab you could make an alcoholic. There's
2: tons,
1: <laughs> tons and tons of addiction and, and alcoholism in my in my family, real real bad ones too. You know, real desperate situations. You know, people who who substances drove him to the grave at young ages. I mean, were real lots and lots of real bad alcoholism and, and, and addiction. So, um, it didn't, it didn't take much to kind of do the math and realize like, uh, uh, this might, this might not be a good, good situation for me. But so you
0: knew, you knew when you were young that what you were kind of getting into. Yeah. And, uh,
1: and how did it escalate? Well, I didn't have anything to hold me back back. Meaning I didn't really have much hope for myself. Um, there was always the kids that I knew were going to be successful and that they were going to go to college and they were going to get good jobs and they were going to, and I just was like, I'm not that kid. And I, you know, I, I come from a different era in the sense that, I think there's been a lot more sensitivity injected into society and a lot of people bemoan that and I'm sure at, in areas it gets a little too much that we could toughen up a little bit but there's also you know high school teachers and coaches and, and guidance counselors and stuff like they didn't shy away from kind of letting you know like okay, just pipe down you because you're, you're not going to make it and let's focus on the other kids can you just please not get in the way of the good kids because you're that kid you're the washout and, and that was you
0: they, they they showed you that you were the washout the class clown the disenfranchised alcoholic pothead stum-
1: yeah I mean I, I just I, I you know when I and I didn't um I I, I was a good athlete but I, I wasn't like great but I was definitely good enough that like I could be looked at as like the dumb jock and I wasn't a good student from Pretty much from day one I mean from kindergarten I wasn't a good student So I just kind of I, I got into this uh, Telling myself this story That You know like hey man Keep your nose clean and maybe You could be a fireman But More than likely the best you could hope for Is like a good union construction gig But more than likely you're going to end up being a nobody. You're like Ooh, you're just going you're going to be a loser. I I I, th- I thought I was a loser and I was like I'm going to be a loser. So I didn't I didn't associate using drugs and and things that I knew were probably not good for my gro- growth and development. I didn't I didn't think like there was the stakes were that high, you know? <laughs> like, what am I really i think
0: it's so interesting though because you're such you, you you've accomplished so much i mean you've, you have a really really thriving career in broadcasting you never had that vision as a kid that that was going to happen that you could do that it never it never wasn't a dream of yours before you got sober
1: no um entertainment was a dr- like a pipe dream you know like any kid would like a lot of kids think they're gonna play for the lakers or you know or the dodgers uh I, clearly i'm biased to la teams but um you know know you know I, like a lot of young boys probably think they're yeah they're going to be a, a pro athlete or a lot of young girls think they're going to be um uh, uh, uh an actress or whatever it is you know what a lot of young girls and I want to get too like gender specific and be that guy but but you know what I mean like every little kids have pipe dreams but I think even then even at young ages in the back of your mind you're like well that's not it's not real I'm not really good but I'd lo- i love I I sit at home by myself and I dream of it I certainly dreamed of being an entertainer in some capacity. And I, and I, when I graduated high school, I, I realistically thought like, well, I'll try and make it as a, as a musician. And I did, I, I believed in it. I wasn't just doing it out of like wanting to look cool. I thought like, I'd love to write songs and, and play music and the lifestyle of rock star kind of took over more so than the music. And that's what force fed me into Looking myself in the mirror and kind of and really trying recovery um and through recovery, it was just a weird set of circumstances that I got into to broadcasting but once I got that once once it hit me, I was obsessive I was obsessive i mean to to a to a, to a fault I didn't care about anything i didn't want to so i didn't want to make friends i didn't want to do i i wanted to go figure out how I could get on the radio more you know.
0: Yeah, I'm like that with dopey. It's like the biggest waste of an obsession ever because I'm not like obsessing to the career place. I'm obsessing to this like weird podcast thing.
1: But that but that's fine though because honestly, I think in the long run, that's what makes success. You know, I, I hope I hope because you have a child, children. It's different. I was I was 21 and recovery and and had nothing going for me so it didn't really matter that much that I kind of sacrificed my social circle and stuff like that but I I hope at your age and your point in your life you're able to separate you know the fact of you could be obsessive about making this show the best it could be and being everything you want it to be while also cutting out enough time to like be a good dad But I do think I think it's important Like I think the people Who have like real Sustainable success It's not about thinking Like I have to be Joe Rogan With this podcast This is what That's my goal Is to be pot. What you want is You want to make the best Dopey there is That's absolutely and that's awesome. awesome I think that's really beautiful well, I appreciate that um and sometimes
0: like sometimes like I hate it when it happens that I put something like I always want to do family day job dopey because like family is most important day job feeds the family and dopey I think dopey one day could, could you know feed the family I think you mm-hmm. can get it done I think it could happen um But it's about being balanced and it's about being loving, but obviously I'm not perfect. I do my best. I do my best. Um, When did, uh, like, because as you're you're sort of like telling your story and you're messing with alcohol and, and weed and stimulants kind of come into the picture and you're not seeing... Like broadcasting isn't in the agenda, but maybe being a musician is. Like I was like that too. I'm a musician, and I I was a failure failure musician also. Um, when and and then when I became a musician, I also was really drawn to drugs. Like I knew that all my heroes were musicians
1: who did drugs. Was absolutely. that part of it for you? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I was like, if I'm gonna be a washout, I want to be the dopest, coolest washout. I want to be like Lane Staley. I want to be like Trent Reznor. Yeah. No, that was absolutely a draw for me. And I've talked to a lot of like really successful musicians. I was, I had the luxury of doing that being, you know, the job that I, I had at K rock here in Los Angeles. You know, I, uh, not, rock and roll music isn't exactly the biggest thing in the more anymore, but you know, 10 years ago, there was a time and a place where every day I was talking to people who play arenas and so many of them that were addicts, either active or in recovery. They're like, well, yeah, I mean, I wanted to be Sid Vicious. I wanted, you know, I, I, these were the people that I idolized and, and America in particular does such a good job of romanticizing addiction without showing kind of the fallout, you know, and it's not just, um, Jim Morrison, you know, you look at like Hemingway and stuff. there's a, there's this really good kind of really effective way that we filter out the, the downside, um, to a lot of these really high achieving, uh, addicts and alcoholics. Sure And I've talked to a lot of Man a lot of really successful musicians That are like the, I, I I don't know What came for. It's a chicken and egg thing Like my desire to be A rock star My desire to be A bad boy Drug addict You know But they both Kind of They definitely were both there Totally
0: Totally I mean when I When I I was a huge fan. The Beatles were my first like crazy love and John Lennon. I just loved. And when I heard he was on heroin and he enjoyed it or, or even Miles Davis, I was like, there was just something about them that, that, I obviously, like I wasn't going to be Miles Davis or John Lennon. I could barely play, but the the romance was totally there. What, yeah, what, and it was for you as like Lane Staley and and uh, Trent Reznor and and that sort of like generation of uh, rock and rollers
1: types. Absolutely, yeah, and they, and and you know the mid nineties as weird and as depressing as it was. It was an amazing time for music. There, there was really like no restrictions, you know. Even in, in like a, on a mainstream commercial level, you could hear really interesting bands and really, really like thought provoking musicians. And um, you know, the lion's share of them had a really serious problem, you know. Especially in LA, there was
0: crazy music coming out of LA, and so many of them were on drugs. Um, were you escalating your use then? Like, when did it start to get out of hand?
1: it got i would say it officially got like out of hand when i moved to san francisco and then like really because then i started associating with like adults they, the dudes that were my age now that were in metal bands and stuff and i'm like a kid and i'm like well they're in bands and they're grown ups and they play music for a living and they all do drugs and it's a part of this world and you can go to work high and no one cares um, it, that's that's when i think it got really out of control yeah. then it hit it hit danger zone like real like i'm a, i'm gonna die one day one of these days um a couple years later around 2000 around the turn of the century um i moved to the east coast to try college try to be like a normal kid and i um i moved to new jersey and i went to rutgers and Within like a couple weeks, I was just not going to class. I was going into the city and going into Newark and just getting high. You know, like within within literally weeks of not knowing anyone in the entire Eastern Seaboard, um, I just completely jettisoned the idea of becoming a student and got in, got mixed up in the in the scene.
0: How, did you give up on music in San Francisco and then go to school? Like what? Like what happened that made you double down on school in between?
1: Well, I got I got like really, really fucked up. You know when I moved up north, and so give me a point, give
0: me a story. Give me a good San Francisco
1: drug story. Um, I don't know if I have any good ones from then. I mean, the, there's here's the thing about <laughs> and uh, I'm, there's going to be like. 12 dudes listening to this that are shaking their head like yep he's totally right my appeal in my draw to heavy music was very sincere and very legitimate but the problem with like extreme heavy music is that it is not cool or a party time I was always surrounded by a bunch of dudes with hair down to their waist and leather jackets you know with pins in them there was no there was no chicks there was no h- cool parties there was a, it was a bunch of dudes in a room smoking cigarettes and doing drugs all day long. you know so it was just very secluded it was very like very isolating um, and very just kind of dark and and, um, and crappy I, I guess I, one one cool story is I, we decided one day out of the blue we're like we're going to Mardi Gras and we're in San Francisco, California. And we're like, okay. So we got in an old Ford pickup and drove to Louisiana. And so there was some amazing stories of like break car breaking down in, 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 Texas, you know, in the Bible belt part of Texas. And these dudes with like a pink glued Mohawk and, you know, leather jackets and, you know, pins in their face. And you're getting out to go like call, call a tow truck at the diner. And people just being like, Oh my God. I, I was like, Oh, we're dead. We're dead. These people are going to drag us off and they're going to kill us. And, so are in a strange land. I, yeah. I, there's always a good Texas story. Good. I went to I went to jail at Mardi Gras for. Um, I by the way, totally not guilty. I could say that now. Twenty years later, <laughs> I got pushed. Everyone was all drunk and it's all you're all crammed in, and I got pushed into a police horse like hard. There was like some fight and I had nothing to do with it. And I went to jail for assaulting an officer because I, I smashed into a police horse. And the police horse was the officer. Yep. Wow. Crazy. Um, when you say
0: though that things had gotten so dark for you in Northern California, and I and I in my research, I, I heard that you were going back to school to kind of study agriculture in order to take over your family's vineyard, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, like. What was the the feelings at the end of the San Francisco era? And you were trying to to start over, obviously, in in New Jersey, New York, whatever.
1: I I, I had come back to L.A. because I like I said I had nothing, and I'd reached a point where I I, I literally had nothing. Um, so I came back to L.A. With, with to my parents, hat in hand, and just like I you know. Did you tell them that you were fucked up on drugs? Yeah, but. Yes, I did, and um, and they were aware, and I definitely was encouraged to seek help, and I did, and I did, even did inpatient treatment, but I wasn't, I wasn't into it, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't my choice, I wasn't committed to recovery, and you know as well as anyone, it's like, there was the only a matter of time before, and I, I, I stayed, you know, I was young, but I stayed clean for like eight months, the first go around, and then, um and then I got back into using it and everything and I I got in and and then that's that's that era is when like some of the funnier stories happened like 99 2000 where before I moved to the east coast after I gotten back from San Francisco I was back with my kind of group of friends I got normal person jobs but I was living with my parents so I was kind of pocketing all the money and um I got to the point where I was like, I kind of made it work. I was having a little fun. I was like, there were chicks, there was drugs, there was parties, there was nightclubs, there was money in my pocket, you know, and I kind of got into this mindset of like, well, maybe let's, let's put a life together. Let's do this. And my parents were like, you, you can, you can do college and stuff like you, this is graduated high school, you weren't that bad of a student, you weren't as bad as you think you are, and, and so the kind of, the, went to junior college, got the prerequisite kind of transferable stuff, and then I, 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 I did it, and I was like, well, I'm not going to do something, so I'm going to try to learn how to take over, or at least help function with the family business, and my parent, my dad had just retired to Central California to get into growing wine grapes, I was like, that sounds cool, you know, it's, and it yeah. looked, it's beautiful up there, and I'll have a place to stay, and so I went to Rutgers, which is, like, really well-known, really kind of respected for agricultural studies. Uh, on the East Coast, it's probably one of the better places out here. UC Davis is really looked at as the the place to be, but, you know, they have a really good campus in uh, New Brunswick that's kind of devoted to growing plants and farming and, and agriculture and agricultural business, and so I went out and I did it, And but like I said... It was only a matter of time, maybe two, three weeks before I started to, like, connect the dots to where I could go get high. Just
0: meeting kids and whatever, you just, like, identifying who might... Have coke or who might know
1: where to get crack or whatever? Yep. Had you smoked crack before you came east or? Oh yeah, 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 yeah I did. It's just like honestly, meth in California at that time and now probably in kind of come full circle. At that time, it was just way, way more prevalent than than cocaine. You know.
0: No, when I was in LA, there was I didn't see any coke and I saw a ton of meth. And in New York, only, the only people I knew that did meth in New York were gay people on the the kind of gay sex scene. So I get it. Um, when you uh, got into Coke in Jersey and crack in Jersey, what was your life like? Like, what did it
1: look like? I, you know, from meeting this one person, the one person, the one person, I got to this guy named Andy and he was, uh, no, Adam, sorry, Adam. His name was Adam. And he was the gayest guy ever that's ever lived. <laughs> and he was older. He was probably in his late 50s and he was wealthy. And he, was, and, he and I just, struck up a relationship it's really strange weird relationship but he always had blow he loved to smoke rock cocaine i did too and we just became two peas in a pod and then i and we would go to new york city we go all of these places around jersey that he knew i i didn't know anything about jersey and um you know, that kind of that gay party and play scene was big and he had this kind of fun life that, and that's what I took that up. And then I just, honestly, like that's when like I'd wake up in the morning and my day from the start was devoted to drinking and using drugs. Like I had no aspirations. I had nothing. My, my mind was completely laser focused on one thing and I cared about nothing else. Not girls, not work, not not developing a life. It was like, how can I get high and when am I going to do that? And stay that way. Yeah. And so yeah. school
0: went out the window. Yeah. Everything went out the window, just you and gay Adam. And, and yeah. what about being a straight guy in the crazy gay scene? Was it just like, I don't give a fuck, I'm just going to smoke crap.
1: Yeah. Like, I, I got to be honest, like, that's one of the main reasons why I get so upset at like out like really aggressive homophobia because there's this, this notion that they're going to be or are something. these like right. pervert vampires that are just going to consume you if you, if you <laughs> hear them. And, uh, yeah, certainly people hit on me or, and I would let them know I was straight and it was like, okay, cool. Oh, well, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. I'm like, Oh yeah, no, no sweat. And then You're you like, know, I'm just, I'm just here to smoke crack, man. And then, you not, crack, not, yeah. and then everyone, you know, and, and, uh, and, um, they got into, there was a lot of heroin smoking too. And that's where I got introduced to that. And then I'd mix, I'd make speed balls. That was, that was it, man. For me, that was like, well, now I've found what I need to do in, on this world. It's, this is the best thing that's ever happened. Um, you know, when I'd smoke speed So, um, that, yeah, that was it. That, and, uh, I, I was very comfortable in the lifestyle. I was very comfortable in, in that world. Um, I was so high so often that I didn't even really have time or the bandwidth to recognize that I was so de- s- depressed and sad. You know, it's just just kind of like this this life force that would get injected into my body um, every couple hours or every 45 minutes, and I just, and it just, boom, 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 and then it would drift and boom, and then it would reset. And then I, I just didn't, I didn't have anything... Really, I didn't have any light at the end of the tunnel anyway, and uh, I just thought it's kind of like a suicide on an installment plan. I was just gonna—that's—that's that's how I'll burn out out there, and um, you know. So that's obviously a really, really dangerous place to be, where you have zero hope or even the resigned. Leader. Your
0: agricultural studies vision was out the window. Smoking speedball became yeah. the new vision, and then you're like, fuck everything.
1: Yeah, and I got to be honest. I don't think that, that my vision of like being a farmer was real even when I went out there. I think it was just like a way to keep people off my back and try something new, move far away from everybody. Um, I realized – and also – at that time, not only the Northeast, I mean, the Northeast for sure, but specifically Jersey had this insane music scene that was just exploding. You know, I'd see bands like, like My Chemical Romance and Dillinger Escape Plan, like in their like first shows, you know, with like 20 right. people there. So I, I everything kind of just clicked for me to make all the wrong decisions. Right. The romance was high. Yeah. Um, and how
0: did, uh, how did you afford keeping up with that kind of drug intake then?
1: I worked for a little bit, but, and that, that definitely, that was kind of how I did, but initially I was living on campus, um, and I think my parents were so ha- happy that I was going to like go to college that that kind of was all taken care of, and because... Jersey state schools really want out of state kids because a lot of those a lot especially specifically Rutgers because there's so many good universities in in Jersey but Rutgers tends to end up being like the um, the local Jersey school you know like kids that go there they, they go to Rutgers so they really really did all this stuff to encourage out-of-state kids, and they made it very financially appealing to just live on campus and go to go to Rutgers. Um, so my parents, they just, I had this cool little dorm, I mean, it was, it was not like a nice on-campus place, but I was, I had a place to go, and I didn't have to worry about paying for it, you know? And I didn't have to worry about, one of the weird things for me growing up in L.A., I didn't have to worry about a car catch rides, catch cabs, catch trains and go and catch the bus and go wherever I wanted to. And that was like, this is awesome. But keeping up with speedballing has to be expensive. I never paid for drugs. I never, ah. drugs. after, after like a certain amount of time, like I said, I met that dude, Andy, oh, excuse me. God damn. Why don't yeah, I want to keep on it? I met this guy, Adam and like, I wonder if he's still alive I hope he's still alive, but I wonder what his life is like now. Cause I'd love to catch up with him because like, Although,
0: I'm, sure Adam, I'm sure Adam listens to Dopey Adam yeah, write, yeah. me, write an email and I'll hook you up with Mike Okay. He was
1: right. He was really As dark and as dangerous and as, and as rancid as our relationship was Because I was this young kid getting high Off of this wealthy older man There was also something Like really special about it You know like we He kind of just like took me under his wing And he never ever tried to Um pose any type of sexual stuff there was never any even like an inkling of him hitting on me or doing anything and it was just i don't know i don't know if he was really desperate for like a non gay guy relationship like maybe he was just so burned out on the on the party and play scene that he he liked this fact that i was straight and we had such a we were bros you know and and i don't know but we had this really strange relationship and then We'd hang out all day, and we'd get high. We'd go, we go to New York City. We'd go to do all these cool, fun things, and um. So the bonds, I, the bonds between drug addicts sometimes are, are amazingly that,
0: especially old and young, the weird places you find yourself. And um, I never had anybody who gave me anything for free, um, or at least not too much, but I mean, I would find myself best friends with, like, old men and, and weird, you know, Dominican guys, or a weird black dude I'd become best friends with for six months, or you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't matter the walk of life, gay, straight, black, white, Spanish, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, whatever. In those situations, you can find these amazing bonds And uh, usually they don't last, though, because the drugs are so toxic. What was the end of your relationship with Adam
1: Well, I I started overdosing. I started going to the hospital a lot. And then one time I woke up in the hospital and I had apparently rented a car and crashed it. And I don't remember any of it. And um, I, you know, the dangerous, I'm sure I don't have to tell you, but for the listeners, the dangerous aspect to stimulants is that, You know, it's kind of like at the end of Scarface, where he's just getting shot like 50 times, but his body keeps going. Well, that's kind of like, instead of bullets, it was whiskey and beer for me. Like, you know, if I, I'd not sleep for three days and drink, I'd drink four liters of, of Jack Daniels, but somehow my body was able to function because of the, because of the stimulants. You know, like my, my brain would shut off at some point, but I'd keep going. I'd keep living in the world. And, um, I do all this stuff and I'd I'd be like, I have no, I have no fucking recollection of any of this, but I I had crashed a car bad, bad. And, um, I was in the hospital. I mean, I was like wires and shit in me and I woke up and, uh, there's a doctor there and they're talking, the nurses are talking to me, taking really good care of me and everything. And all of a sudden, like a cop comes in maybe like two hours after I come in and uh, he's like, Oh yeah, I'm. I'm glad you're okay, but you're you're under arrest. <laughs> There's a reason why I'm here. Like you, you smashed a car into this place, and then he told me all about it. And I apparently I was telling him at the scene that I was trying to commit suicide. You know, when I was and I was all bloodied and fucked up, and so that happened. That was the point where, regard, no matter how hard I tried, my parents had to be informed. Um, so yeah. yeah, and they they were informed of how. Uh, fucked up I was Literally How like Physically damaged I was in but Then also They were informed That I had rented a car And crashed Totaled it Didn't ask for the insurance And that Someone's gonna need To pay for it So all of this Just hit them Like a ton of bricks And that I was under arrest And so You know They flew out And that's where I was like Okay Well I'm leaving The east coast I gotta try And get back to the Move back try recovery again, went to Hazelden in Minnesota, um, got a lot out of it. It was a beautiful, beautiful place met some really cool people. Um, but I was back using, back in LA, back using again in a matter of months, and... Do you, um, remember, do you remember
0: like when you, got, when you got into the car wreck in New, in New Jersey, and you're using you know what I mean like you're in the midst of using was not using anywhere in your head was like holy shit I fucked up my life I have to get out of this was that
1: part of the conversation only when I was high as soon as I was clean for any amount of time I was like well I'm I need to get high again right but there would be nights where, yeah, if I'd be up and just like by myself, like hitting the pipe, and I'd be like, "What am I doing? I'm not, ne- I'm not using it anymore. I'm quitting. I'm quitting. I'm quitting." And of course, as soon as you get off the high, you know, you're drawn right back to it. But never in a like clean state of mind was I ever like, "Well, I'm done." Until you know I, until I finally got to the point where I, I made that decision, but out of all this crazy shit that was happening to me, all this incredibly damaging all uh, not only damaging to myself but damaging to all the other people around me um, my my final moment of, of use and my, my my moment of clarity came in a totally innocuous way, I, and I, I still sounds so corny but i, I mean I, I it was like a it was like a coming to god moment because there was something otherworldly about it i was in a hotel room in inglewood california here we're not not the nicest neighborhood by myself smoking crack middle of the day and there was a mirror at the edge of the like uh, cabinet facing the bed and i'm sitting on the edge of the bed and I you know jenny jones or some daytime talk shows on and i'm like and i'm looking in the mirror and i looked at myself all thin just looking a mess and i'm only 21 years old or something and i i had this moment of like what what have i become what what am i doing with this gift of life what has happened and and when i think back on it it's very strange i cannot think of it in my first person way i can only see it as like i'm looking down on myself in a closed circuit television or something
0: well it's been a little while though since then right how how many years have you when did that happen yeah that was 2002 2000 so we're coming 18 years you've been been it's amazing so you have this moment that you've wasted your life jenny jones
1: is on tv and what did you do I got up and went and, uh, for you youngsters out there, this is going to sound crazy, but I walked over to the other cabinet, you know, by next, to, next to the bed and opened it and found what's called the phone book. Do they still make books? I think. I don't know. I don't know, but this was 2002, man. I certainly didn't have a fucking smartphone and I started flipping through looking for recovery centers in, in the area and I called like three or four of them and, uh, I found one in Pasadena, which was ironically like right next to where I grew up and where my parents lived. And they said they had a bed available for me and they'd love to have me. And so I called my parents and they came and picked me up. And that night I drank everything they had in their house. And the next morning I woke up and had breakfast and went to Los Encinas Hospital in Pasadena and that was the last, that was the end of it. That's amazing. Um, before that, when you were between Hazelden
0: And the motel room Like, how quickly did it Did it, like, disintegrate?
1: So quickly, that's the scariest part for me when, Whenever anybody asks me Normies asked me, you know, like do, do you think you could I mean, it's been so long, don't you think you could have a couple beers or something. And I go, I, I don't, I, 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 understand. I totally, I, am not insulted by the question or, or hurt by it. I, I go from your point of view, I get it. Cause people always say you're so responsible. You got, it seems like you have your shit so together. And I go, I, I get it. I totally, don't. I was like, you have to understand when I got out of Hazleton, I had a glass of wine with dinner once two weeks later, I'm in alleys in, in, in murder zones. Looking for for crack from str you know for strangers trying to score meth in in like the high desert you know like I, it, it it escalated so quickly like it was as if I had, it was as if I drank poison it was just like boom I was a different person so it was like I drank poison where I put it to my lips and then immediately I started changing and I just became that old guy. Who did you have wine with at that dinner? Just like, uh, if I remember correctly, it was like buddies I grew up with in high school.
0: And it wasn't even like, this is not like... I know every time I left treatment and I relapsed, it was like, I'm relapsing. It was like, I'm getting dope, I'm getting weed, I'm getting pills, I'm doing this, whatever. When you came home from Hazelden, when you went out to dinner, was it like, this is the beginning, or is it, this is a glass of wine?
1: No, the the other times... I, I I totally agree with you. It was the same exact thing. It was like I'm fuck this. I'm going to get high right now. I'm finding. I'm gonna I'm gonna go to liquor store. I'm gonna get a six pack. I'm gonna like, down that. And then while I'm downing that, I'm gonna go find drugs. This was much more of like I had been having these ideas for a couple weeks where like it was floating in my mind. I was like, well, maybe I can. Maybe I can. And I was at dinner with a bunch of buddies, and it wasn't like a nice restaurant. We just went out to get like hoagies or something at some, you know, dive, dive Italian place. And, uh, they had a bottle of wine and they weren't, you gotta understand Like I had removed that, that whole side of me had been pretty kind of detached from the rest of, my home base here in LA, there was a couple of friends that were always there for me and that were very entrenched in like how bad I'd gotten, but most people really weren't. So when they ordered a bottle of wine, it wasn't like, every, it wasn't a weird, awkward thing when I asked for a glass, you know? And I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll fucking glass of wine. I don't even like wine. You know, I was just like, right,
0: oh, that, exactly. Um, I
1: think that's interesting in itself. Like, um,
0: cause like if people ask me now, like, do you think you could have a beer or whatever? I always just say, I don't, I don't, I'm I'm not going to check. Like, I don't want to find out, you know what I mean? Like in, in your situation, do you remember like you got drunk that night? Did you use right afterwards? Was it the next day? Was it the same
1: night? Was it, it was was like a slow progression. Like the next day, I think I got some weed. Right. And then, but I certainly got drunk the next night too. And then it was just once you get, once I got into that mode of being inebriated, then it was like I'm, I need to find drugs. I can't, can stop here. You know.
0: And how different was that bottom, that stretch between Hazelden and Las Encinas versus the bottom in
1: Jersey or the bottom in LA before? Or that was that was the that was the darkness, and I think that that's why it eventually led to. That kind of moment of clarity, because that was that was the darkness. There was nothing, there was no euphoric recall to those times. There was no nights of great partying and, and fun and happiness. It was all just self punishment and, and horrifying despondency. Um, and you know, and it wasn't a very long period. Maybe it was like maybe a month, maybe maybe two you know, if I'm remembering I remember
0: how you strong, how you strung that time together in terms of how you could use it, that in that condition, like, you know, like when I ask people for stories, you know what I mean? Like I'm usually not looking for like the good, the good party story. Like I'm looking like, how did you manage to put a few months of just smoking crack together? Like it's not well, easy to do that.
1: I, I had moved back. And again, I had to, just eat my pride and, and move back in with my parents and through this whole thing they'd been so supportive they, you know I, I realize that like what separates me with 18 years of sobriety with a lot of people is that I had parents with enough kind of concern and money fucking wipe my ass when I shit the bed they they always you know it's not uh, when I need when I made those decisions like well I'm just gonna up and call inpatient facilities like my dad wrote the check you know like and I realize how fucking crazy fortunate I am for that I don't take it because I live in Venice Beach California now Um, it's a it's kind of like a kind of well known city here in LA beach city that's always been the haven for like the counterculture it's also the only place in Los Angeles where it's legal to live on the streets so for 60 years it's been where homeless people go and there is a un indescribable homeless problem in Venice Beach and I have such um, a-, a-, a painful deep Sympathy for so many of these guys and gals because I I try my best to to talk to them, to engage, you know, as best I can within safety because you know I I do have a little girl, you know, and I I know that that's a that's a dicey thing to do, but I I try, you know, I talk, I I, I engage, and they're so so desperately addicted, and I know I I just look in their eyes, I don't say it, of course, but I look and I can like, man, you and I are separated by so little. I grew up in I grew up in a different zip code than you. Because I, if if I didn't have a dad that would just write checks, I would be like you. Possibly, possibly. Yeah. It's crazy. No, and I appreciate that a lot. I mean, it's like,
0: I mean, me too. You know, my, my father sent me to a million places, and uh, and my my friend Chris, who died, you know, making the show with me, right. he he went to Las Encinas also. Oh. <laughs> He had, he had years in... I had years in L.A., but I would go to, like, public detox, and I went to... I think I went to Tarzana once, and I went to some public detox. I don't even remember the name. I probably went there, like, 15 times. But uh, is it... When when you went to Las
1: Encinas, is that where you met Drew? No. I I, I mean, I think that's where I started to re- get a lot more face time with Drew, but I, I, I mean I don't know how weird laws are around this kind of stuff. There's nothing, like, I'm trying to hide, but I don't know, like... With, I know with attorneys there's weird stuff, but with with Drew, Drew was my my mom and dad's physician. Wow. For year for thirty years. That's so funny. So I had known Drew like he was like he was Dwight Catherwood and Rachel Catherwood's son. Mike I know Mike Catherwood but we didn't know each other. Know each other, you know what I'm saying? Like, because I had a different. Doctor, I never saw doctors. I did, I, that's become a new thing. I, I guess as a parent, I'm blown away. I was like, "Why are we taking my daughter to the doctor again? Like, why does she need to go?" Because when I was a kid, I just didn't see doctors. I didn't. But I did. I have. But my mom um, suffered from a lot of medical conditions, and Doctor Drew was her general practitioner. So I, I did know him. But then at Los Encinas, at the time, he was the addiction medicine uh, MD on on call. And so, yeah, that's when I would, um, would, got, got facetime with him. And it wasn't until after I tried my best to be as, um, to do, recovery with as much integrity as possible so while I was there I didn't say I'm Mike Catherwood I was just going as Mike because you know we don't there's the anonymity thing it wasn't until after I was in an outpatient at, at Los Angeles, where I'd continue with um, outpatient um, ongoing treatment that that's when I was like oh, I'm by the way I'm Mike Catherwood and Drew you know he did he and I think he did invest a little bit more hands on time with me uh, back then
0: And he never would have guessed that years later he would become your
1: partner on Loveline or all the stuff that you guys... No, 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 no. And when you're... (laughs) Right. No, no, no. And not not only because I was so, so screwed up, but also just because, like, I... I, uh, Saying I was going to work in radio was like saying I was going to work for the LAPD. I mean, it was just... It would, it would be, it's preposterous it was random uh, why would you pull that career out of out of a hat you know so um, that and it was just like I said it all came together by an incredible set of circumstances i I got a job at K rock because I was trying to genuinely put my life back together and um I had no college degree And I had no real skill set So I got Five jobs I got I was a janitor I was a night watchman At a rehearsal studio And then I also got An entry level job At K-Rock FM This rock radio station Out here in LA As like As like a Like a Entry level janitor guy I mean I was like The bottom of the barrel I would drive the jocks around I would load big boxes Of stickers And and package up The 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 Merch that they would Give out at concerts I would sort through All these concert tickets And you know, I was doing Clerical work I was a, a grunt How much clean time Did you have When you showed up there Like just doing that stuff Three
0: weeks So So as soon as you got there Did the dream Like Give, you know where you birthed the dream in your head like holy shit because you're on music you were at a studio you were at this place you're at k-rock Just band stickers like band stickers are the coolest things because they're like a passport into your dream right you know right. what I mean like when I make dopey stickers I'm like I have a band now like it's yeah. my band yeah, um, no, exactly. And I, I get it, you know. Like, so you're at K Rock, and you're like basically seeing a window where you're like, "Holy shit, I could do this."
1: Well, it, yeah, I, I I didn't initially see it that way because it was just still like, "Hey, man, I got to pay the bills." I didn't, you know, and I was working. Eighty hours a week for no money. All all cumulatively, I was still making shit. So I, I didn't. But there were these moments, man. After I was working there, maybe five or six months, where you know I would be responsible for like going to pick up a DJ who was doing bringing Linkin Park on stage or something, you know. And they would have these live performances, these live live events where the jocks would go out and do stuff. And I would go to these red carpets And pick, and, and every once in a while I would I would add to it You know, like I would do some prank Or I would, I would fuck with people in a certain way Or prank call the morning show for, Do something To kind of work with the, the entertainment aspect of the radio station As opposed to like the business behind the scenes And um, people were like That was funny, that was great And pat me on the back for it for the first time and that had ever happened in my life, no one had ever been like you 're really good at this. Thank you for doing this. You did a good job and I got it was like a, it was so wildly transformative. I know it sounds corny, but it got it, it, it lit something inside me and I it showed had a purpose it gave you a purpose yes, it gave yes, you a dream. it 's like so beautiful and then I remember like seeing like then having that happen, then coupling that with the fact that then I would see like Adam Carolla walk through the hall and I would say, what's up? And he, or, or I drive Dr. Drew and, and, or Kevin and Bean to a thing. And I was like, I see them, I would see their flesh and their, you know, it wasn't just a voice that I hear on the radio. And I'm like, oh, they're real human beings. Like they're people like you and me, like I could do this. I could be this guy. And and then you combine that again with the unbelievable naivete that I had at that point where I was like, oh, I'll just – I'll work hard and I'll be on the radio, not knowing, like, how ridiculous the – odds of doing that are, you know, that it's a really difficult job that people work hard to develop their ability to do. And so I just did everything. I was like, what can I do? I started learning how to digitally edit. I started learning how to, um, I started taking, uh, diction and voice classes. I started doing all these corny, weird things. And, um, about another three or four months went by. I'd been working at K-Rock maybe like eight months and the associate producer for the Kevin and Bean show was moving radio station. He was going to go to K-Rock in New York, WXRK. That was Howard Stern station. And um, so they had a job opening. And people around the station had known that I had been doing these pranks and these weird things. And I had been prank calling the morning show quite consistently. And so, like, my name was in their ear. And they, they auditioned, or they interviewed me for that job. They did not like me They did not think I had What it took They did not find me to be Charismatic enough Or Qualified enough And they hired another dude This is a crazy Honestly this is going to sound like Some weird Romantic comedy But this is 100% true They hired another guy The very first day The guy Was supposed to show up for work He called in Drunk yeah, remember it's a morning show, so they have to be on the. They have to be there at like 4:35 a.m. He calls. He's like, I can't make it. I was gonna, and he was hammered. And Kevin of Kevin and Bean was so furious that he's like, "Fuck it, just call that other kid. Tell him, see if he can be here in, in a half hour." And they call, and and I. That's how I got the job, and that was the beginning of my start in radio because some other guy was suffering in his disease. I. I got this. You benefited from his disease. Insane opportunity. What are the chances? The cool thing that, I mean, it's an
0: amazing story uh, and I appreciate it. Uh, The thing that I'm imagining in my mind is as you're doing every little thing to get there, Mm -hmm. at the same time, you're in recovery and you're going Mm -hmm. to meetings. And is it the same kind of lessons that you're learning in both places that if you do every little thing, this can work are you feeling that kind of like a parallel destiny thing or no
1: yeah yeah it was more honestly what i really connected the dots between the two was the patience aspect of it Where It's like you're listen you're not getting cured you're not gonna never you're never gonna wake up and be like hey pfft, alcohol is silly drugs let but keep showing up keep showing up and just don't phone it in ever Just keep doing your thing Keep doing it And eventually It'll all make sense And um, I just kind of did that In both places I made sure I was, I was never late It was 4.30 in the morning I had to be Sometimes I'd be The night watchman At, at that recording studio The night before and I I'd come in straight from work and I definitely was tired. I definitely didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to go to Cantors and have cups of coffee at three thirty so that I could be there at four thirty. But I just kept doing it, and I made sure I, I was never never late, and I always was ready to handle whatever I could. And uh, th- and and then yeah, it just started. It it all just kind of started to unfold, you know.
0: And you've done so much work since then. Obviously, Loveline was, was tremendous. You did Kevin and Bean. You're regular on Jason Ellis, Control
1: Freak, you and Drew on your Swole Patrol. Are you still doing Swole Patrol with Drew? No, we kind of, you know, Drew's gotten massively busy with um, the California homeless problem. He really adopted that as his pet project because. He thinks that there's just no real reasonable voices out there from from the medical community. You know, there's a lot of social workers, of course. There's a lot of benevolent people um, and philanthropic people doing it. But he's like, no, listen, you don't understand. There's so much schizophrenia and addiction and stuff that it's not a matter of it's like, oh, this this fellas just hard, hard on his luck. He just missed a paycheck. And it's like, no, no, no. That's the, that's the mom living on the streets, single mom, you know, she's just, she just got evicted, but she's trying to put her life back here. These, these consistently, the years and years living on the streets, he's like, that's ill people and they need medical help and no one's, no one's stepping up to the plate. So he's stepping, stepping, up. He's stepping up. And so he, he, he got that. And, and then and he's literally like going to the white house and shit and going up to Sacramento all the time because he believes in this so much. Um, so we, so swole patrol we, Patrol is out swole patrol, swole patrol dropped, but in its place, I started my own kind of health and wellness podcast and that's, he likes you, Mikey likes you. Yeah.
0: And, and you did high and dry with Jason Ellis mm-hmm. and, uh, was he high and you dry, but you're sober. Nope. I was like, I, I was trying to figure it out. I mean, cause you were sober and he, he gets high, right? Yes, he does. Yes, he, yeah. he very much does. I had him on the show. Oh. Oh, he yeah. Yeah. He was very sweet. He was in his jacuzzi, I think <laughs> as he was on the show with me, which was nice. It was lovely imagery in my mind. Very and Drew, Drew has been so generous with us on Dopey. He's been on Dopey a bunch of times and he's talked about, uh, this homeless plight. Uh, and, and, and he got like that whole COVID thing with him, like, Holy shit. Like, they got, like, run out of town on his, like, his uh, his thought, you know? So it's yep. like he has a lot of pressure on him. God bless Dr. Drew.
1: Well, you know? and, and it blows my mind. It's like everyone's entitled to their opinions. Sure, if you don't think Dr. you think Dr. Drew's a quack, fine, whatever. But this notion that Dr. Drew's not a real doctor, nor are his intentions pure, you're like, dude, I got to step in here because nothing can be farther from the truth. And frankly, I'm insulted that you would even insinuate that because you don't even fucking know Dr. Drew. So don't try to play like he's some, like his motives are not pure or that he's misguided or that he doesn't know what he's talking about. You know?
0: Um, this is a stupid story. I'll, I'll tell a stupid story and then I'll set you free. Um, basically, I went to go interview him after after Chris had died and I figured me and him were tight and I'm, and I'm and I'm very his his Susan has been incredibly generous to me throughout the years like she's hooked me up with guests. she's always nice to me, whatever and I go to their apartment on the Upper West side and I'm talking with Susan and drew comes in like, in his workout clothes With the towel around his neck And I go up to hug him And it's like He gives me the most awkward hug I've ever had It was just the funniest thing Because he's like And it was like It was just very funny then, <laughs> Does he ever give you Nice warm hugs Or is it awkward hugs He's a good warm hugger Or awkward hugger Or is it just me
1: We uh, Drew and I are very similar In that regard That Drew, uh, Listen I love Dr. Drew And he's never been Um Shy to say the same to me Like We're very open That we care for each other Very much And we have a very real Friendship Outside of our Political rela- our, our professional relationship Sounds like awkward hugs though But we we're not Just no hugs No hugs That's not Drew and I Like we don't I think we both kind of sense it. And look, frankly, I, I came from a family that where I knew my parents loved me and all, but I I've never hugged my my parents, and I that's not no no way.
0: Um, what about Magnolia, lots
1: of hugs from Magnolia. Oh yeah, no, I hug her so tight that I'm gonna break her, you know. Right. And I, I think that maybe I have a longing for something that I've been missing, and um, it's very. Time mean, I mean, you see Drew, would you give him a hug for me, though? Well, especially during COVID, that might be a dicey endeavor, but, uh, sure. Just for you. And I'll say that was, that was from the dopey podcast. Yes. Um, he, like,
0: he's so generous to me and so kind yeah. to me. When I got sick, he called me just personally to see how I was doing. And like, I love Dr. Drew and Susan and they've been very good to me. But, uh, so what's next, Mike, Mikey likes you. What are you going to do? What's your plan? What's, what's the takeover?
1: Um, creating content, man. Like, honestly, I, 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 I finally come to a point where I, I don't. I'm not searching for like my paycheck to say NBC Universal or Viacom. Like I've I've realized like it's 2020. It's not 1986. You can be a you can be really successful in show business. Frankly, even more successful on a like a personal uh, gratification level by doing it all on your own. And so I've started just kind of like those feelings I used to have at the beginning of radio where I was like, you know what, I can do this. I finally at age 41 got this feeling. It's like I can, if I want to write a TV show, I can do it. I'm not, you know, I, 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 those are just men and women just like me. They have hearts and brains and lungs and put their pants on, you know, because for, for so long I got this, I was like, well, I'm lucky enough to be a radio guy, but I'm not a te- I can't, I'm not a television producer. I can't be a showrunner. I'm just lowly me who makes fart jokes. And just in the last couple of years, I was like, no, you know what? Screw it. Like, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna create I'm gonna create TV shows. I'm gonna create internet series. I'm gonna create my own podcast. I'm gonna create my and I'm just whatever I think excites me artistically. I'm gonna I'm gonna start hammering at home. And um, I've been really lucky. I got an animated show coming out on Quibi, um, based around Rudy the around Kula Breaker. So nice. Um, and that's like the first step. And I just want to kind of I just want to keep that keep that train going.
0: See, I think that's amazing. And I also think it's very funny that uh, the way you set up the story in the first place was that you. You were the kid that wasn't cut out to do anything and that you had no potential and that if you were lucky, you'd pour concrete or, or run your parents' winery or whatever. And now you basically do whatever you want and you speak in a way where it's obvious you have a great understanding
1: of many, many subjects. When did it turn around for you here? Well, with the speak on the different subjects, that's always been me. I've always even when I was a, and I was a terrible student. But I always, like, genuinely enjoy waking up in the morning and reading the paper and, and watching Bill Maher, you know, back when he was on Politically Incorrect, before he even had his HBO. I, I always had a, a deep interest in um, uh, history, particularly American history. I've always been fascinated by American history, American government, politics, social events, current events. Um, so I I, I love I, I It's not like a chore for me to a bunch of papers, listen to uh, a bunch of talks and things like that. I've always wanted to kind of, I've had that intellectual curiosity always, but the turnaround as far as like telling myself, like you can do this and being a positive, I would say when I met my wife, my wife's been instrumental in doing that. My wife, Bianca has been really instrumental in getting me to destroy that self-limiting beliefs. Because I, I still, listen, I'm still that kid that told myself like, oh, I'll be lucky if. I'm not, I'm not a winner, I'm not a this. I always tell myself, I'm not, I'm not good enough, I'm not, and I think a lot of addicts share that, you know? So I still have the negative self-talk, but I've gotten probably better at dealing with it and puncturing through it, um, probably in the last, like, two years. Oh, I think it's great And uh And thank you so much For taking so much time for us I
0: really appreciate it It was really my pleasure dude Seriously Good Thank you man Um uh, Alright thanks Mike Have a going, man Alright so There he is Mike Catherwood A joy To have him on the show After uh Years of flirting with it And years of people saying You know Who has crazy Fucked up stories It's Mike Catherwood Well we've done it Everybody who wanted him Rejoice And um Mike Catherwood worked at K-Rock in California and uh, there was a K-Rock in New York but it was like named after the K-Rock in California and I guess they named K-Rock in California K-Rock because all of the radio stations in California started with K and in New York all the radio stations started with W so it didn't even make any sense to call it K-Rock and they played alternative music Uh, on K-Rock and Howard Stern moved to K-Rock and, um, you know, one thing I'll never forget about K-Rock in New York city is that every day when I I would listen to K-Rock on the stereo in my apartment on, in Chelsea, I would leave, um, to go cop at like 10 in the morning, uh, hoping that I could listen to the end of the Howard Stern show and then listen to it when I would come home. And it was so often that I would go out to Williamsburg. No, I would go out to uh, Bushwick and I would take the L train out to Bushwick and I would meet the dudes in the in the kind of Crown Vic kind of gypsy cab looking car and I would get as much as I could buy and I would come home and every time I would come in, it was always that Gorillaz song, I'm happy. I'm feeling glad I got sunshine in a bag. I'm useless, but not for long. The future is coming on. And somehow Mike Catherwood reminds me of my old uh, radio listening two days, um, which is interesting. I mean, the other day I was in the car and the the Bluetooth went out and we were listening to the radio and it felt so crazy that the radio station is in the air, like that it's still out there. It just seems so archaic now funny i would love to get a job on the radio the other thing that mike catherwood reminded me of was the long forgotten dopey fitness challenge and um i have to say that uh i don't know if the dopey fitness challenge is ever going to come back my fitness has been on the decline since the summer Uh, i'm lucky if i exercise four days a week and my sit-ups are at around 200 and my push-ups at around 60 which is a third down from where they were i think when we even recorded this episode but i had gotten up to 90 and 300 now we're down every day and now i'm down to like four days 60 and 200 and i'm literally eating like it's going out of style i'm like quadrupling up on desserts like i might have a a few like Like I had... What did I have before I record? Oh, I had... Linda bought these uh, Paul Newman Oreos, which are delicious. And she bought this Starbucks hot chocolate K-cup. So I had a couple of those before recording now. And I think I'm going to have some more before I go to bed. And this is just the pattern I'm in. So like the Dopey Fitness Challenge is like in the distance, but maybe there's a New Year's resolution coming up. Maybe the Dopey... Fitness challenge or something for 2021 I don't know but I do have A dopey uh, fucking voicemail From the queen Of dopey bonus episode Voicemails and it's none other Than Texan Super dope Amber Renee Coming with that crazy ecstasy Story here we go Amber Renee Hey dopey nation This
3: is Amber Renee I'm gonna try To do a voice memo of this story i just remembered and that's what's so awesome about like getting clean and going through some like major traumatic experiences (laughs) and then having a flashback while you're sitting outside of a dollar general um so i'm not really good at this i've been in a couple before and i just i'm so scatterbrained and this and this is so difficult for me because i have so many outside issues. <laughs> so bear with me as I tell the story. I'm so much better just conversational versus uh, knowing I'm being recorded, so, um, you know, whatever. Uh, so this takes place in, uh, it was it was following night uh, in 2015, I think, or 14, one of those. Um, Me and my childhood friend, um, Kat, um, are super fans of this band called Slaybell. And they're like this electronic, female-led, punk, hardcore band. Industrial, almost. Um, Oh, no, not really. Whatever. Um, So they came to town. They very rarely tour. Um, so, we pre-gamed at her apartment, and uh, we each did uh, a tab, and then smoked a ton of really high quality, and drank a lot, and uh, got uh, a taxi out to the show in uh, South Dallas. Um, it was at this venue called Trees, when it was still open, um, in the Deep Ellum area, and um it literally had trees inside of it. It was really cool. Um, and so we, we tripping hard at the show. And, and they're playing, like, all these lights. And they have TV screens with various, like, weird images. And um, we're really feeling it. Like, it was a good trip. I was just, like, feeling the music um, and the people around us. Everybody was dressed up. I was a cat and she was a dog. <laughs> and, uh, like, I play boy bunny type cat, not, like, cute little. Uh, <laughs> so um, wearing huge leather, like, thigh-high boots, um, uh, chains around my neck. Um, and I, I did draw some whiskers on me and wore red lipsticks. So it was really, really cute. And she was this cute. Uh, she wore this uh, white, like, a onesie, like, like, one of those, like, really tight bodysuits. And then put spots on them in like you know areas. So it was a really really cute idea. Anyways, back to the story. Um, she uh, so we're at the show and after the show we're vibing right. We're just straight vibing. After the show um, we go up to the merch table because the band's there, and uh, we just we just kikied so hard. We just me and the singer just started talking, and. Um, she signs my vinyl and uh, gives me a bunch of freebies and stuff. And uh, we just got, it was at the end of the night, so it was, like, 1 in the morning or so. And she's like, hey, so I'm going to send you this um, QR code to get into a haunted house. And we're like, fuck, yeah, for sure. And so <laughs> we get this QR code, and, and, and it takes us uh, pulls up a Google map, and uh, takes us to the industrial side uh, of Dallas, like right off of the Trinity River. It smells down there. There's like chemical plants. There's like all sorts of stuff down there. So we pull up to this warehouse. Again, we are just like the walls are humming and the, the, Sounds are just unbelievable and we're 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 we are we're hitting it, we're peaking. as uh, we pull in to this warehouse at about two in the morning. And there's probably about like thirty cars around. And um hold on, there's some drama at the Dollar General. <laughs> there's a almost lady yelling. Uh okay, anyway, so um there's like twenty cars. There's um Oh, here comes a cop! <laughs> okay, uh, I think a Homegirls about to get arrested. <laughs> Hands up! Okay, sorry. Um, so there's like 20 cars out there. And there's some people in the parking lot drinking. We drink with them. Uh, of course, stranger liquor. You never know what it is. Um, and I think it was tequila or something. And uh, so we go up to this go up to this warehouse, and it's like a pull up chain, like one of those pull up chain doors or whatever. And we come in and there's three people dressed as cops. Like, they're dressed as, as police, but they have pig masks on. And they're holding a little scanner thing, and they uh, ask for our QR code. So we scan our phones in, and they're like, proceed. And we're like, okay, so again, we were trash. We were having a great time, it's 2 a.m. And we go down this hallway. And um, the hallway has uh, like things hanging from the ceiling. Turns out they were like pig intestines, like real pig intestines. And we're freaking out. Cat throws up because it, like <laughs> one of these intestines like slaps her in the face. So so she vomits wildly. Um, and we get cleaned up and then we continue on. And um, pretty much, so there's like these little offshoots of these rooms, right? And one of these rooms had um, a little plastic pool with glow-in-the-dark water and uh, two little people inside of the pool wrestling, right, wrestling. And one is the devil and one is an angel. (laughs) We just stand and watch this for a while. Um, The next room uh, was, like, a fitness room, like a gym, Um, but, (laughs) like, all of the – all the benches and, like, anything that had a handle um, had a dildo on it. And people were, like, fucking, and people were in leather and in chains and just, like, and I'm not talking about, like, no offense, like, good to look at people fucking. You know what I mean? It was, like, really gross to watch. And then there was this, this one room with a huge king size bed, And a real big lady sitting in it um, doing things to herself. And then there was um, a little cubby room with uh, people crawling around um, that, like, kind of looked like bugs or something. Like, they had, like, antennas and they were painted up. Anyway, so I'm standing standing at each room just, like, is this even real life? Why and this is awesome, all kind of at the same time, and, uh, you know, as we're, like, wandering around the place, and it seems like it took hours, like, I think it was probably about, like, three thirty is when we both were, like, okay, we need to go get high again, and kind of, like, not remember this, and we're, like, walking down the hall to the exit, there's a blurry hole wall there, um, there's just, like, random people fucking, there's, like, and everybody's in costumes, and there's, like, a diesel generator right outside of the exit that was, like, blasting gas inside, (laughs) or, like, exhaust inside of the, um, the warehouse, and we, like, so, like, we stumble out into, like, smog, pretty much, and we go back to my car, we get high, um, we, we had a 40 that we were sharing or something like that. And we look at the time, and it's like four a.m. And we're like, "Oh my god! Like, what the fuck just happened?" Right? So we go back to Kat's house, and um, that's it. Like, we were in—we were like in complete silence the whole way, the whole way um, from Dallas to the suburbs. And uh, like, we both woke up like much later in the day. Like, I think it was also like six or seven o'clock when we finally like came to afterwards. And um, and then she tells me that um, the tabs she gave me actually were like three stacks. So it was like three, three in one or something. And I've never, I've never been much of a ecstasy person at all. Um, so it was very, uh, it was very fun. Um, we had a great time, and it was one of my like, it, like I can't believe I just was like, like running errands for mom and I'm sitting outside of Dollar General, and I see Halloween things, and it, like, triggered that trauma. <laughs> it was it was a lot that happened at once, and it's still, like, we still talk about it to this day. Like, every time we get close to Halloween, Kat and I say, hey, you remember that time? <laughs> and, but, like, it was generally, like, a really good night. <laughs> it was just very weird. Um, and, you know what, I, I, like, I have four years. Um, this coming Friday and it's super cool that, um, I've supplemented my recovery with the people in this group and in the nation. Um, and, and I'm able to like really just be who I am, no matter how like terrible my shares are or inappropriate <laughs> because it's my story. And, you know, I, I just, I can't tell you how, how much, um, Dave, you, you, you're just, absolutely an amazing human being, and I love your little family, and I'm just in so much gratitude to be a part of the nation, and if you're not a Patreon member, uh, bitch, get on my level, because I'm a $5 member, Uh, (laughs) but uh, anyways, toodles, Uh, that's all I got, (laughs) I hope you can use that, Uh, stay strong, dopey nation, and uh, love you from Texas, bye.
0: So is it a coincidence that we've had two Dopey bonus episodes and they've both had Amber Renee as the Dopey voicemail? I don't know. Todd shot, perhaps? God's will? Clearly? I don't know. Anyway, it is a joy to bring you guys the dopey week after week and come with the dopey bonus episode. Amber Renee, thank you. Send in more voicemails, but make them shorter. That's too fucking long, but it's funny. And it's out there. Pig intestines, ecstasy, booze, orgy. I mean, you can't really go wrong with stuff like that. Anyway, It's always a joy to pump out the Dopey for you guys, so thank you for contributing. Thank you for being a part of it. Thank you, Dopey Art and Makers, for all the shit you make. Thank you, Cormac, for Reddit. Thank you for getting us to 2,000 reviews. I think that uh, we're going to be at 5 million downloads this week, so everyone should give themselves a pat on the back for uh, contributing, listening, downloading, supporting, and being part of the Dopey experience. Stay strong, dopey nation, and fucking toodles for Chris.